Teen rom-coms have a rich history of incredible needle drops. Clueless, 10 Things I Hate About You, Cruel Intentions. The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, and my personal favorite, Can't Buy Me Love. And while most of these movies will have episodes of their own on NSYNC, we couldn't wait to talk about this year's surprise Netflix hit, Do Revenge. Do Revenge is a movie that embraces the history of incredible musical moments in high school movies and picks up that baton and runs with it. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk to Rob Lowry, music supervisor for Do Revenge, about his work on the film, clearing dozens of songs, and specifically the closing song, Meredith Brooks's Bitch. All that, plus some background on the movie and the song on this week's episode of NSYNC. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to In Sync, the podcast that explores your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I am your other host, Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, I want to thank you for letting me strong arm you into um, making our second ever In Sync episode about the movie Do Revenge. I hope that you enjoyed it. Yes. So this was puzzling, right? So when we started talking about doing this show it was like classic needle drops from classic movies and then it's like the next one is the netflix movie that just came out so why exactly (laughs) are we talking about a net a brand new netflix movie that just came out first off when this movie came out on netflix in september i saw so much conversation online about its needle drops it, and yes, I knew that when we started this podcast, I wanted to talk to music supervisor Rob Lowry, who has just been over the last few years, it's like every movie or show that people seem to be excited about in like the TV and movie zeitgeist, it seems like Rob has, is in some way involved in it. So I knew that I wanted to talk to him on this podcast at some point. And the movie Do Revenge itself... It is new. Is it new? How new is it? Yes, it's clearly influenced both musically, visually, and like script-wise by so many classic films. It's clearly a movie that is really interested in what came before, and it's building on it, and, and it's kind of reanimating the genre of a teen movie, but for 2022. That is why I wanted to talk about Do Revenge. A I, movie I'm that sold. Is t- technically new, but very interested in the classics. The, and also the classic needle drops, right? So today we are going to be talking about the 2022 Netflix film Do Revenge. I spent 17 years meticulously curating the perfect life. I had the perfect friends, the perfect boyfriend. Maybe you could send me something to keep me company. But you know where all of that got me? Absolutely destroyed. Max ruined my life. He'll never get away with this. Is do revenge even the correct grammar? Oh, I'm sorry, Schoolhouse Rock. Are you dragging my sentence structure right now? I think that one of the main reasons why this movie has been so popular over the last couple of months on Netflix is it's a, it's a very it's got a lot of very dark humor. Mm-hmm. It subverts today's like teen concerns. Like I think you see that a lot of younger people are very concerned with well a how they come off on social media, but then at the same time there's a lot of classic concerns like social relevance class money yeah it's interesting they pay like there's like a environmental protest in this in this movie that like has nothing to do with the plot they just like walk by a bunch of high schoolers protesting you know environmental conditions it does feel like this kind of teen comedy tongue-in-cheek teen comedy of like the you know 
the new millennium. We should stop saying yeah. new millennium. It's 2022. <laughs> to back up a little bit, this movie was uh, directed by Jennifer Caton Robinson. She's best known for creating uh, the MTV show Sweet Vicious and also the Netflix movie Someone Great. Jennifer Caton Robinson also co-wrote the latest Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder, alongside Oscar winner for Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi, who's a big director fave of mine. And who also is embroiled in as many love triangles as the characters in this movie. <laughs> but Robinson didn't write this this screenplay for Do Revenge on her own, right? Mm-mm. No, um, she co-wrote the screenplay with Celeste Ballard. Do you know anything about Celeste Ballard? <laughs> I, I know that Celeste Ballard wrote the comedy version of Lost, which was uh, on TBS. It was called Wrecked. And it didn't, that didn't, wasn't like a huge hit show, but I, I remember it being very funny. And she also wrote, I shit you not, the, the, the Space Jam sequel that came out last year, Space Jam, A New Legacy. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is her yeah. follow up to Space Jam, A New Legacy, which was her first feature film writing credit. Okay. Okay. Well, I didn't see Space Jam, A New Legacy. It's great. It's just as good as the first one. This seems like a real step up. No. I would say it would it would be like a step up to the streets. <laughs> cool. Well, together, Ballard and Robinson have created, in my opinion, teen movie magic. Together, this is an uh, an ensemble cast of uh, Camilla Mendes, who memorably portrays uh, Veronica in Riverdale, which I've only really seen the first couple of seasons of. I've heard that it's I kind am of shocked, shocked <laughs> that this show is in its sixth season. I'm amazed that it's gone on that long. Yeah. Um, People love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really loved the first season or two of Riverdale because I grew up reading the Archie comic books like voraciously. Like I had a huge oh, wow. collection of Archie comic books that when I was bad, my parents would take away from me. That's an incredible fun fact. It is. Yeah. So Veronica Lodge herself. She stars as... Drea Torres is our one of our main protagonists in Do Revenge, uh, as well as Maya Hawk, one of my favorite Nepo babies. Yes, I think one of the uh, one of the good ones. Definitely, very talented singer. Oh, is she? I haven't heard her. Record. She is a singer. Yeah, yeah. So Maya Hawk, you would uh, immediately recognize from Stranger Things seasons three and four. And she is a f- like a fan favorite of that. And and you might for our older audience, recognize her face because she is an exact clone of her mother, Uma Thurman. Yeah, her personality seems a bit like her father's, though. The the very little that yeah. I know. Ethan Hawke, Late who back. actually hails from, speaking of my hometown, Ethan Hawke hails from my hometown of no shit. West Windsor, New Jersey. He was like one of Hell our yeah. claims to fame. Rounding out the cast, we have Austin Abrams. Who plays problematic (laughs) problematic fave not the actor but he plays a problematic fave in the film yeah and uh he's like the i there's like a a love pentagram in this in this movie but he is a a, the third in the in a triad i would say (laughs) the love pentagram yeah there's like how uh, many love triangles are there in this movie (laughs) high school so yeah there's a few and then finally, we have one of my faves, Sarah Michelle Geller, who plays the headmaster. So the Sarah Michelle Geller connection is something I I desperately want to unpack about this movie. But first of all, we got to give a little bit of background on the movie. Right. And because Rachel is such a big fan, I'll let you kind of take it away on what is this movie? What is it about? Why should we care? As like mo- like old people, you and I now, why should we care about this this movie? This movie, it's loosely inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. If anyone grew up, it really doesn't matter what era of the teen comedy you grew up in, you will recognize bits from every era of the teen comedy in this film, such as Clueless, Election, 10 Things I Hate About You, Mean Girls. I personally saw a lot of Jawbreaker in this film. I did too. I love love Jawbreaker. The ones that I really saw closely were Jawbreaker and 
cruel intentions. There is an, a clear cruel intentions connection, especially because this movie is very concerned with money, class, privilege, how one uses or abuses their privilege. And of course, Sarah Michelle Geller was the main antagonist in Cruel Intentions. And uh, she doesn't really hold the same kind of role in Do Revenge, but her presence is kind offers kind of a wink to the the audience, older audience members yeah. like you and me. And she is she is antagonizing, let's say. She is antagonizing. Yes, she's uh, playing a beleaguered headmaster of a very privileged private school. The other thing about Cruel Intentions that will prove to be its own episode on this show is that it has an iconic soundtrack that this movie tries to emulate. And so the reason that we're talking about this movie today is not just because it's like an interesting and fun throwback to 90s teen tongue-in-cheek sex comedies or rom-coms or whatever. It's because it tries to capture that same lightning in a bottle that movies like Cruel Intentions, 10 Things I Hate About You, and She's All That did in the late 90s. Yes. I also want to say that this movie will be a treat for the eyes and the ears. So the soundtrack is just great needle <laughs> drop after needle, needle drop. Well, <laughs> just broke a beat. I just love it. I would like to well, like it on record. This is a treat for the eyes and the ears. It really is, though. The, the essential plot, I'm going to pivot. The, the, the plot is essentially that uh, Drea Torres, played again by Camila Mendez, is uh, a very super popular and she wants to get revenge on her boyfriend for allegedly publishing their sex tape. Camilla's character, Drea, despite being extremely popular and concerned with getting into Yale, actually comes from a, a more middle, lower middle class background uh, as opposed to her peers who are all immensely privileged. And her foil in the film, played by uh, Maya Hawke, is uh, an exchange student who is haunted by a rumor from her past. And uh, these two girls team up together to take action against their tormentors that's like the the main plot of the film except it mm -hmm. uh it, it takes takes a few turns are we gonna go into spoilers in this so i, I was gonna i was gonna say that we could remain relatively spoiler free but the 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 backbone of the story as rachel mentioned is is strangers on a train which it involves two strangers meeting on a train each wanting to commit a murder and them realizing that they could do each other's murders and get away scot free one of one of whom is like way more into it than the other so he does that murder first and then the other guy's like mm, I was just kind of kidding and so a similar thing happens in this movie where one of the revenges gets enacted and the other one starts having let's say second thoughts and and there's some trouble from there but i guarantee you it does not play out in the same way as the hitchcock classic from 70 years ago i want to read a quote from kate and robinson when she spoke to vulture about the movie's aesthetic she mm -hmm. said uh, when one of my executives from netflix watched the movie he said it was like john hughes fucked wes anderson which i loved but that was exactly what i was going for all of these directors very directly influenced the look of the film to the point that we used anamorphic lenses. Those lenses, especially old ones, can distort the picture, and I wanted it to feel really crisp, beautiful, and clean. We found these newer anamorphic lenses that could lend themselves to achieving that Wes Anderson look, pushing the vibrancy and color without distorting the image. As someone who has used anamorphic lenses in the past, this is not a correct understanding of what anamorphic lenses do but i i get it <laughs> see i i really wouldn't have known that anamorphic lenses do this thing where they compact the image horizontally so the image coming out of the camera is squeezed skinny and then in post-production you spread it back out so the biggest um hallmark of anamorphic lenses is if you see lights in the background you'll get this kind of horizontal lens flare so uh, this was created digitally in movies like Star Trek, but it has a lot of these old prestige movies were shot in anamorphic and you get these nice twinkly background lights, which I think is what she's referring to, right? Where you get kind of a, a wider 
uh, wash of color in the background of certain frames, but the distortion only happens at the very edges of the frame, and like we usually correct for that stuff. So like I get I get the idea, but the science behind it is a little different. I just like pushed my glasses up. The minute you said lens flare, I thought of Star Trek. I I do like what you said about the that kind of like mixing of John Hughes and Wes Anderson. Yeah, I think. So there's John Hughes, there's definitely Wes Anderson, but there is this kind of darker Heathers-esque sort of streak in the movie where like these people are are trying to kind of ruin each other's lives in, in pretty significant ways. Well, there's a trip to a mental institution featuring a great guest appearance by Sophie Turner. Um and so yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting picture. Yeah, it's just it's a lot of fun. Um, the di- I, I personally, as, as a writer, truly really love the dialogue and like how yeah. all these kids are trying to like appear the most woke while still like trying to ruin each other's lives and like yes, right. Like I love I, I love the boyfriend character. Um, Max kicks off his who like allegedly oh has God. shared his his girlfriend's sex tape, but um, starts the year by like at a like at a school assembly he's announcing the creation of a like a male ally like a straight like a cishet cishet straight male ally straight male ally club that to, to oh be, learn God. how to be more feminist and this is kind of covering <laughs> his tracks because he's he's clearly a terrible person i mean we all you don't have to be in you don't have to be in high school to know somebody like that who's yeah who might be um performatively woke but um clearly like doesn't really like their actions in private are completely the opposite of their uh, actions in public. We all know someone like that. And this is part, this is also where like the, the idea of like election and Alexander Payne's kind of dark comedies come in, which is like, this could be a scene right out of election. And we have a voiceover a la Tracy flick um, about, you know, the perfection that's expected of Drea and her high school, you know, persona. Quick aside, um, if you haven't read the sequel to Election, I recommend it. What? It a good There's read. a sequel to Election? Yes, it shows where Tracy Flick has ended up in um, 30 years after graduating that from high school. awesome. Uh, yeah, it's called Tracy Flick Can't Win? Yep. Shit, I gotta buy this. Yeah, you'd like it. Um, I recommend I do, it. I do love Election. I think Election's like a perfect movie. <laughs> also kind of ahead of its time super ahead of its time the critics were a fan of do revenge uh the daily beast called it a generation defining masterpiece saying that once a decade there comes a high school comedy so stylish so witty so instantly influential that it cannot be topped netflix's colorful new romp is that movie the new york times meanwhile called it as a playful Sharp-tongued satire that feels like the 90s teen comedy hammered into modern emojis. Crown, knife, fire, winky face. I love that. Yes. Uh, Roger, <laughs> RogerEbert.com gave the film three out of four stars and said the film manages to blend all of its influences into a distinctive movie that is fully committed to its vision of high school as a handsomely costumed, art-directed snake pit filled with sadists to get off on other people's pain and embarrassment. That RogerEbert.com review was written by Matt Zoller Seitz, who is a, uh, I'm a big fan of his film criticism. And he, his main criticism of the film was that it's a little too long, especially in the beginning. So I wanted to know what your kind of view of the film is. What did you like about it? What felt new to you? What felt familiar to you? Clearly... I really couldn't get enough of this film. I was a huge fan, like kind of <laughs> from the from the jump. Honestly, like one of the biggest reasons why I love this movie is the soundtrack. The soundtrack is such a potent mix of old favorites plus some more obscure pop hits from the '90s, which we'll talk about in a bit. In that way, do revenge felt instantly familiar to me. I feel like I've seen this movie before, but it like the language of the film feels so contemporary. I think this is true of any new great art that it feels familiar. It's clearly pulling from influences 
from the past, like classic influences from the past, but it's but how is it like building upon that? How is it making it relevant to today? I feel like Do Revenge really found that formula. They threaded that needle so perfectly. I really do love also any um, teen content that can kind of make fun of itself a little bit. And yes, Do Revenge, for sure. Do Revenge is really, really aware. It's kind of weaponizing like woke culture satirizing it a a bit yes while still being a diverse movie there are a lot of diverse characters a lot of like varying perspectives there's a a real tension of um the haves and the have-nots that like i feel like the first iteration of gossip girl tried to do (laughs) but Mm -hmm. really really did not succeed i i like that do revenge had significant stakes for its most popular character who doesn't come from a lot of money and you get the mm-hmm. you know that she needs to go to this school and be successful at this school in order to get into a great school. I mean, of course, I think even um Maya Hawk's character says, Hey, if even if you don't get into Yale, you're going to get into a great school. But a good college. But the mm-hmm. way she says that is a little uh there's a layer to that that we don't want to spoil. Yeah. Yeah, yes. And the haves and the ha- there's like a there's a, like a tension of of a privileged discussion that feels really like relevant and um like the conversations that are being had in this film are not although they take it takes place in high school these ladder up to your 20s your 30s your 40s it's like how are you perceived and where does your like privilege get you but it's also just a really fun movie to look at. The costumes are bomb. Yeah. The costumes are super <laughs> yeah. cool. There's this interesting cycle of teen movies where the writers of teen movies are writing about and drawing inspiration from the references that they experienced when they were teens, right? So the John Hughes movies did a lot did a lot of winking to like the 50s and 60s ducky sings like a motown song in pretty in pink and then in the 2000s we were calling back to the 80s and now we're in the 2020s calling back to the 2000s and so it makes sense that this is firmly rooted in like 1996 to 2001 in terms of its cultural look cultural references and this is like how these this is like part of these fashion trends pop culture trends musical trends like coming back every 25 years is because the creators are now the age the the audience is now the age of the creators and so a couple of references that you might not have noticed or that one might not have noticed um there is a classroom that is located in Horowitz Hall, which is a reference to Cher Horowitz from Clueless. Of course, Sarah Michelle Gellar is the uh, sometimes conniving headmaster, is a reference to Cruel Intentions. But my favorite, very small homage was for the co- the the character of Russ. Um, who is like the bad boy boyfriend artist that Camilla like Mendes is but he's dressed exactly like Johnny Lee Miller from Hackers, <laughs> which is a a masterpiece. I've only seen Hackers like one time. It is a mess that movie, <laughs> but he's like he just is, looks like he's copy pasted out of Hackers, and it's it's cool because I think that these. Movies and homages work the best when they're when they're quietly winking to the audience like, hey, this is like a cool thing that this character who's an, an, a misunderstood artist obviously would model his fashion sense after. And not, no one has to go up to him and say like, hey, Johnny Lee Miller out of Hackers, like, what are you doing? And so I think I think this movie is overall successful. I'm a little bit cooler on it than you are. I like the kind of tongue-in-cheek satirizing of all of this stuff i like that this movie is at points impossibly horny um and there's like also a paint fight but what i wish that is like copy and pasted from 10 things i hate about you by the way right exactly and yet i was hoping for in the in the culmination the climax of the story a murder i was hoping for I don't know, be, just because, because I felt like some of the characters deserved to be murdered and the like heightened, stylized version of this movie, like it's okay to just like have the two main characters 
kill the guy that deserves to be killed, bury his body, and then drive away on the bridge. But that's sort of my biggest criticism. I overall really like the movie, but my biggest criticism is like, go further. Give me something wild. I guess so, but I think that kind of creates a an ethical question. Is it? <laughs> there, and there are no other ethical questions in this movie. <laughs> well, what is it? Is it worse to be killed, <laughs> literally, or to be canceled? Mm-hmm. That is, and I think that that's a really interesting question that I would have actually loved if the movie tackled, right? Like, mm-hmm. don't do this to me. Please just kill me. I would rather be killed than canceled. Right. Um, is, I think, an interesting and, and very in keeping with the tone of the film. Also, there are several references to the craft, which we also can talk about. Oh, oh, that's that's a good catch. I also, I wanted to, before we move on, point out, how much I loved that I don't know I haven't read anything yet that would indicate this was purposeful but in the movie they do like a makeover for Maya Hawke's character to Amazing. kind of in, in, infiltrate the who starts out a little bit like nondescript from Laney, kind, kind, frumpy kind of yeah. and, she's glasses and a ponytail how are we ever going to make her hot and so they put her like mean girl style in the like they infiltrate the popular group and to me, that like in addition to like the Mean Girls reference, to me that felt very um like jo- like uh, Judy Greer and Jawbreaker. Where oh my they, god! They, yeah, they, Fern they Mayo, her, huge. They turn her into Fern Mayo, yeah, and 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 even like costu- the costuming felt super familiar in that like the very like neon like and I'm meant to be popular costuming. That may be where I wanted the murders to, like, where I was like, oh, this is going to end in, like, a bloodbath is, like, the jawbreaker of it all, or the cruel intentions of it all, or the Mean Girls, which ends with Regina George getting hit by a bus. So, uh, that's, I think, kind of, uh, that's where I'm at with it. Okay, so so you wanted a little bit more, you wanted more, like, actually... Aggressive, aggressive violence and not passive aggressive violence. I, I agree. And that might be, you know, the difference between our genders and how we're socialized, where I'm a man, so I'm like, just fucking hit him. <laughs> just yeah. fucking just fucking hit him on the head with a rake or well, something. Well, Aviv, we did get the hits um in Rob Lowry music supervisor <laughs> Rob Lowry's Neil Drop. Yes, we did. And I want to go into them real quick. If you watch Do Revenge, you'll notice there's a potent mix of hits that you would hear on either like today's like top 40 radio and TikTok. For example, like you've got the Olivia Rodrigo needle drop brutal. You've got which Caroline is amazing. Palacek. Excellent song. Excellent needle drop. Yes. You've got Caroline Palacek. So hot. You're hurting my feelings, which really hit on TikTok last year, despite it being a couple of years old. You've got Muna's silk chiffon. My favorite needle drop that I didn't, like we're not going to center the discussion on but I was obsessed with this early in the film at the like the opening party scene is a uh, Robin's do you know what it takes to love me but I think I think the title is just do you know what it takes and of all the Robin songs that Rob could have picked for this <laughs> I'm I'm obsessed with the fact that this is this song is from Robin's 1997 album that uh, Show Me Love was on. Oh my God, I haven't heard that song since it came out. It's not It's not like uh, Dancing on My Own, Robin. This is like right. old, like obscure Robin. I th- and I think that that's a perfect kind of representation of the rest of the movie, right? Where it's, he's taken this new, brand new artist, the, this artist that everyone knows contemporarily and finding a needle drop from them that is of the era that this is paying homage to um some of the other classic needle drops or classic songs that they needle drop are third eye blinds how's it gonna be celebrity skin by hole harvey danger's flagpole sitta which made me very happy and the impression that i get from the mighty mighty boston's who actually show up in the movie clueless they absolutely do We've <laughs> got Fat, Fat Boy Slim's "Praise You," which amazing. Like I was, I was just bowing down to the screen at that point when they played that. <laughs> and you've, and then you kind of circle back to some newer hits, like you've got Haley Kyoko um, for the girls, and Pom Pom Squad, big favorite of mine, and Tate McRae, 
and you got Rosalia in there. Billie yeah. Eilish is in there. And then uh, the movie closes out. Well, technically, the movie, the the, the uh, credits run uh, to Cranberries. Yes. And, and there's another yeah. Cranberries. Uh, there's like a string quartet version of Cranberries earlier in the in the movie as well. Mm. But I really wanted to talk about Bitch because it's the most interactive needle drop. By that, I mean the movie closes out with the two main characters like riding off into the sunset across the bridge in Miami, just scream singing the words to Bitch. Another homage to uh, Cruel Intentions. Yes. And I I wanted to know, Aviv, what you thought of this needle drop and and just the scene in general. Uh, Why do you think it worked? So I think, I mean, I really like the scene. I thought it was a, a pretty cathartic way. So these, to end the film, these, the, our two main characters have gotten over their differences. They're driving over the, the bridge in Miami in that old classic car that's like basically the same one that Reese Witherspoon drives at the end of Cruel Intentions. And yet they're singing instead of like, it's colorblind, I think, in, in Cruel Intentions. Reese Witherspoon's character's actually driving off to Bittersweet Symphony. Oh, that makes sense, of course. By the verb. Um, yeah. So this this is a much more raucous song. I liked the needle drop, and I, I think it's weirdly um, kind of thematically fitting in a way that the listener might not know. So uh, we all know, you know, the, the hit bitch, bitch, lover, child, mother, sinner, saint will not be restrained. Um, Asha- ashamed? Ashamed? That was a massive hit in the 90s, but Meredith Brooks had been making music since the 70s, and uh, she was in. She started her career in an all-female band called Sapphire, and they did, like, kind of heart Fleetwood Mackey sort of things, and then throughout the 80s, she was in, she was doing, like, dance, dance songs, dance hall songs, and never really broke through, never really broke through in the main mainstream, and was like always kind of it seemed like runner up, chasing the trend. The trend was never her. And that continued into the nineties when she had her first massive major, I think probably only massive major hit with Bitch, because Many, many people, including myself until a few months ago, thought this was, did not know who the song was by. Everyone and their mother thinks that the song is Alanis Morissette. And so there is an interesting kind of reinvention of Meredith Brooks in her own career, right? Where she was this, this new wave person. She was this female prog rock person she and then she decided that to be authentically herself and write a song about all of the different things that she was that that she can contradict herself because she contains multitudes and that's the song that became a huge hit for her and this has become kind of a metaphor for the movie, right? The movie is all about reinvention. The movie is about how you present yourself to the world, how you interact, and how you can be more more than one thing at the same time. So I think it's actually like a perfect song thematically to close out the the film. Um, But let's talk a little bit more about the song itself, Bitch. I'm a bitch. Bitch came out in 1997 on May 20th. It was the lead single from Brooks' second album, Blaring the Edges, also came out in 1997. Bitch was co-written by Brooks and Shelley Pekin, which I once had the pleasure of interviewing. Bitch did come out around a time in the mid-90s when Alanis Morissette 
along with other singers of the era. You could call it the Lilith Fair era if you wanted to um, speak in blanket terms, but you had singers like Fiona Apple, Tori Amos, Liz Fair, and many others singing emotionally about their feelings. And it did tend to, this movement did, did tend to be boiled down unfairly just kind of like dismissively call them, oh, they're all just like sad women singing about their feelings. But the beauty of Bitch is, as you as you put it, Aviv, it's a great song about how women are not just one thing, even though the patriarchy would often just kind of look at them as like, oh, well, if, if, you're, if you're not married, then you're just single. Like, how, like think of how Fox News looks at <laughs> at women <laughs> mm-hmm. they're defined by the mm-hmm. things that are put upon them right so Pekin told billboard in an interview i'm not an angry young girl or whatever the phrase of the moment is but i'm human it's not to excuse ranting and raving but i don't think there's anything wrong with having a mood i don't think we all need to keep the mask on all the time by using the word bitch, uh, Pekin and Brooks are like reclaiming that word um, as like a term of endearment to say, as you said earlier, that women contain multitudes and and can like have, you know, hold two truths at the same time. So it's just a discussion of women being complex humans. It's like a a sort of a pushback at um, society is sort of flattening them. And it connects so well with the end of the movie because these two characters, Maya Hawks and Camila Mendez, is you see them in the beginning of the movie and you kind of want to like, oh, one's the ultra popular mean girl, really. And the other is like kind of a, you know, wallflower character. And then you see them showing so many different kinds of feelings throughout the film as, as they're narratives progress and it kind of gives you like a reminder not to just assume things about people based on how they appear it's you know the 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 age old don't judge a book by its cover and then the way that they drive off into the sunset singing bitch together kind of seemed to me like a like a happier Thelma and louise instead of driving off a cliff to their certain deaths after Fighting for Spoilers themselves, for like Thelma fighting back. <laughs> Everyone knows the ending of, of Thelma and Louise. You're telling me the boat sinks? <laughs> Instead of driving off a cliff, here, here you have these two women like grasping hands, driving off into the sunset, and just singing at the top of their lungs about how they're humans and not just one thing. Yeah, and and I think that that the song itself was kind of a, as you mentioned, a reclamation of the word. And this is that moment made in cinema, right? They're, they are uh, spoilers for this movie. These two characters realize that they're both kind of evil. And they both, their their secret power is just like bullying. And they're okay with that. And they also are capable of love and friendship and affection and all this other stuff. And so they are reclaiming that they're both bitches as they are driving over this bridge singing this song. So it's like, I think, once again, the kind of the perfect, uh, it does what the song wants, right? Which is to reclaim that name as something that it's okay for people to be sometimes. Yeah. And um, I want to draw a comparison again to Mean Girls because in, in Mean Girls, you see Lizzie Kaplan plays... Uh, someone who was bullied for allegedly being gay, which potentially, she isn't, but there, but yeah, but there's a rumor around that um, Regina George in the film starts about her being gay, and she, but uh, you see someone who was bullied. Lizzie Kaplan's group of friends are they're really just they they bully just as hard. It just isn't. A, yeah, yeah. The problem is not what clique you belong to; it's the the cliques themselves. Exactly, and I I, I think that um, do revenge is it explores that same kind of like doesn't matter really where you fall on the spectrum in high school. Like this is about ultimately survival and how people survive, and that that can really come at an emotional cost. I want to read a quote real quick from uh, from Shelley when I spoke to her in 2020 about bitch. Women are complicated. We're not two-dimensional. 
And men who would be worthy of being with us realize that and they embrace it and they love it. We're not boring. And and then that's that's kind of where the lyrics you wouldn't want it any other way came from. Would it surprise you to know, Rachel, that Shelley Pekin recorded a version of Bitch on her own that as like a demo? Would it surprise you to know this? It it wouldn't. I, I believe that Bitch started out as more belonging to Shelley Pekin. Yes. And um, she kind of, co- it, it became more of a collaboration. Yeah, it became more of a collaboration. That Shelley Pekin is the one that had the idea for the song. She spoke to the Tennessean um, in 2018 and said that the song, this is her quote, Shelley, the song was born because I was so frustrated. I had 10 years of album cuts, but I never had a single. I was coming home from a session one day full of PMS in a big funk and said, what am I doing? I thought to myself, my poor boyfriend who I was living with, I'm married to him now, he's going to have to deal with this when I get home and God bless him. He loves me any way I am, I thought. He loves me even when I can be such a bitch. So I think it's important to like look at even this song that's all about kind of embracing labels and shedding labels came from this moment of insecurity that she had of being judged for like a feeling that she was feeling. And instead of cowering in the corner about that, she used her her work to uh, reclaim that. Yeah, I think that that's something that it's a very human feeling. It's not just... It's not just directed at women. Um, I think anybody has a lot of fear in relationships, especially long-term relationships, about well, what are, what's the other person going to say when they realize who I really am. Like I'm, we all kind of think of ourselves in our worst moments as monsters. Um, and like, is is my partner who I love going to run away when they see like the swamp creature I can be? <laughs> The goblin mode. But (laughs) I love what Shelly said. I love what Shelly said to you in this Grammy interview about her version of Bitch, which we can listen to a bit of right now. I hate the world today. You're so good to me. I know, but I can't change. Try to tell you, but you look at me like maybe I'm an angel underneath. So in 2020, Shelley said to me, women who love that song and relate to that song, they don't think of it as aging at all, which lends a lot of credence to it being used so perfectly in Do Revenge. The message is still the same. The version I cut from my album is way darker and more cinematic, but it doesn't have to be that. I loved Meredith Brooks' version too, uh, but as far as the use of the word at the time, uh, Meredith and I looked at each other and we didn't assess it as we wrote it, because while we were writing it, we were just in the zone. This is what we wanted to say. This is how we want to say it. And after we were done, we looked at each other and said, will anybody ever put this on the radio with the word? Then she reminded us that uh, the Stones did it. Elton John did it. No, Nobody ever kept their songs off the radio. Uh, and I assume she's saying using the word bitch. But two women calling themselves a bitch, that they were... Like, when you think about it, that song coming out now would be, as Shelley put it, beige. When you think about the language and pop that gets by and the things that are spoken of today, she says it's pornographic. Uh, sometimes I wonder if that song, Bitch, loosened the lid for more risque language on the radio. The Shelley Pekin version of Bitch, which is, as she described, darker, more cinematic, feels like Meredith Brooks by way of Marilyn Manson and Eric Clapton or something, but it is a little bit more ominous versus Meredith's version, which is much more in a major key. And it's a tonally, it's triumphant. It's yeah, exactly. It's it, it, th- this is threatening, and uh, and the other one is triumphant. I think this would be, would have been good for like the trailer of Do Revenge. I'm a
what do you think the staying power of this movie is going to be? So the Daily Beast called it a generation-defining masterpiece, as you mentioned. Do we think that this is going to have the same staying power as something like Clueless or something like Cruel Intentions? Okay, so I want to start by saying that I think a like a defining a generation defining masterpiece feels a little <laughs> heavy handed. I don't. I love this movie, bit. but I don't love it as much as that sentence. I think this is a great movie. I th- I, I I I like that. Netflix and Hulu and other streaming platforms have become kind of the de facto living space for teen comedies and rom-coms, two genres or two subgenres that like really, really ruled the decades that you and I grew up in, like the, the 90s and early 2000s. So I, I, I do love that, that, that these movies can thrive. Um, on those platforms. That being said, I don't think that Do Revenge is going to have quite the same long tail as like a movie like Clueless or Cruel Intentions. Simply, mm-hmm. it, and that's not to impugn its um its quality, but that's only because the amount of content is so vast. I actually, I I super agree. I think that this will this might define the year. It might make it onto mm-hmm. some best of lists. I don't necessarily think that it's going to like break. I, I mean, it it really remains to be seen. But I I, I think that it's like I've already seen Do Revenge inspire some like Halloween costume ideas. But I don't know <laughs> that it's like. You, I think you'll see people dressing as Cher from Clueless for Halloween for like forever. Who even knows how many more years? But yeah. I don't think the same can really be said. And I don't think that's the fault of the movie. I think that's more just the the the, the content landscape. And how attention gets spliced and the amount of material that's out there. That being said, I do think this movie and the soundtrack will do great things for uh, Rob Lowry's career as a music supervisor. Do Revenge has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, while Clueless has an 81 and Cruel Intentions has a 54 So this isn't to say that the it's nothing to do with the movie's quality though i do think that like i would have liked a little bit more kind of personality in the directing of this movie not in the 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 musical needle drops by the way those are spectacular but i think the way that studios this is you're exactly right in in that the 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 landscape of content is such that studios don't rally around movies like this anymore and if this movie did come out in the 90s there would be million dollar marketing campaigns this would be in the theater for months and on home video and people would be you know having sleepovers and and watching it over and over and over again until they fell asleep like people did with clueless and cruel intentions and it would win you know mtv awards and all this stuff but because of the way the the movies are made these days especially with netflix where like Every month they've got a crop of new movies and they can't really focus on one thing too heavily. We don't have these kind of monocultural touchstones like we used to, which is kind of a shame. I couldn't agree more with that with that. It's different. I don't I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. I think it's just different. And mm-hmm. um I know that this movie will stay with me personally because I do love a smart rom com and or a teen comedy even well into my 30s but (laughs) um not that not that far into you let's not be crazy (laughs) even vaguely in my elder millennial years but um i am excited to see personally as someone who nerds out over music supervision um i am excited to see what what do revenge will do for rob's career and i'm excited to talk to him about his work on this movie After the break, you'll hear our chat with Rob Lowry, music supervisor extraordinaire. We'll be right back. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Hi, my name is Rob Lowry, and I am a music supervisor for film and television. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Rob, it's so good to have you on. We are longtime fans of your work. And uh, you and I have spoken before a bit about your work on the first season of Gossip Girl. Um, But I wondered if before we get into Do Revenge, if you could tell us a little bit about your background as a music supervisor and then how you eventually came on board to work on Do Revenge. Yeah, I think I I mean, it is kind of it's it's been a crazy year, I think, in terms of just kind of like the high profile visibility of stuff we worked on. It kind of started with cha-cha real smooth which premiered at sundance back in january we had the lost city which came out in um march and was you know a big kind of box office hit which was really fun um and then we had bros come out which was a high profile project that didn't necessarily translate to the box office but has been kind of a nice nice big hit uh on vod and streaming And, and do revenge yeah so it's it's been a busy, fun year. And also, I think just kind of you can see the diversity in the projects. It seems, Rob, that you're extremely busy. You've got like 10 credits this year, 10 credits last year, 10 or so the year before that. How is it jumping from project to project, basically like one a month coming out or so in various genres and various styles? Some of them are TV, some of them are movies. What is it like doing music supervision for such a a wide range of things in such quick succession? I mean, mean, it's interesting as stuff comes out because... You know, for instance, if we had Bros come out in September and then we had Wendell and Wild come out in October and, you know, Bros, we actually started on last Christmas. So all things considered, it was a pretty quick turnaround. We finished the project, I think around May we mixed. So we have that, which is like maybe like a five, six month project. And then a month later, you have Wendell and Wild come out, which we were on for uh, over three years. Oh, wow. It's funny because it's a little bit misleading in terms of timelines and and when you might start and, and finish a project. But I think it's fun because I feel like you never really get burnt out on something because there's always the opportunity to kind of move on to something else if you're feeling a little bit spent. Um, and I also have two people that work with me, uh, Emily Bender and Mia Riggins, who are both really wonderful and super hands-on and we kind of work as a trio on every project so we kind of someone might have a preference to work on one project one day or do a certain pool for a certain scene and then we'll kind of review it together but it's nice to be able to kind of delegate and then also find a balance in terms of what we're prioritizing and what we're you know feeling inspired by or passionate about on a certain day from doing all these projects in not as rapid succession as i may have implied but you've got a lot of irons in the fire and excuse me for putting words in your mouth get a little bit of you get energized jumping from like genre to genre let's say um Mm -hmm. how did you come to work on do revenge so just to clarify you you are right because at any any given time we're really working on 10 to 12 projects Mm -hmm. for do revenge so jen the writer director jen and i met years ago when i was on a show called the bold type on freeform because the showrunner for the bold type had done jen's first show which was a show called sweet vicious that only lasted a season on mtv but is kind of like a cult classic and is like one of the craziest most fun shows ever and i wish it would have gone seven seasons but jen was a really big fan of the music on the bold type um and my friend amanda who was the showrunner connected us and jen and i just kind of became really good friends kind of based off of that and and really i've said this before in interviews and stuff but jen and i are like totally musical soulmates we have the exact same taste and even when we're not working on stuff together we're kind of sharing stuff back and forth so i got the script for do revenge probably about a year or a year and a half before they shot and jen sent me the script and i think there was like 50 songs scripted into the into the film at the time and so you know we'll start early at that point in terms of like clearing stuff and there was kind of an idea that maybe we were going to do all modern bands covering these 90s songs and so we kind of started to go down that path in pre-production there was also some visual vocal on camera performances that we ended up shooting but didn't make it into the film there's there's a deleted scene somewhere of maya hawk performing 
I love you always forever at like a high school kind of talent show that didn't make it into the final cut, but it's really awesome. But yeah, so we started, you know, I start got the script in March, 2020. And then we officially came on the project, I think that summer. And then Jen had written Thor for Marvel. So she went to Australia while they were filming Thor and was also kind of, we were working on Do Revenge. We would like zoom at crazy times and stuff. And then right when she got back in the spring of 2021, um, basically started shooting Do Revenge then. So we were kind of working on it together for over a year in terms of sharing music and clearing music and just kind of figuring out the musical palette. Cause as you can tell, I think we ended up clear. I think there's 31 or 32 songs in the film. And, um, you know, it's obviously wall-to-wall music. And some of those were scripted, some of them weren't. But um, it was a very, one of the more intensive projects, partially just because Jen and I are close. And, you know, she's such a huge music fan and it's such an important part of, of her storytelling. So we were there kind of every step of the way. Having the music cues written into the screenplay, one of my many hats is as a screenwriting teacher. And that's like a big no-no. That's like a thing that's a habit that I need to break a bunch of students of is like, you're not supposed to write music into your script. And there, there are very famous examples of writers who do it specifically like Edgar Wright, who wrote all of the music cues into baby driver. So how do you feel as a music supervisor when there are specific music cues written into the screenplay? It's a really good question. I mean, at the end of the day, I, you know, I think as long, I mean, a big, a big part of our job, I think is kind of educating people, whether it's filmmakers, producers, whatever it is about licensing costs and, and, you know, trying to be the realistic kind of at times bearer of bad news. I think I, I'm not totally anti it as long as, as, as they know that they're not going to get the Rolling Stones sympathy for the devil, even though they've written into it. And, you know, sometimes I think it can be helpful in terms of just giving a tonal idea of what you're looking for. But I will say like, you know, two of my favorite projects ever, which would be like Cha-Cha Real Smooth and Do Revenge. Both Cooper and Jen have just really wonderful music taste. And they, they both are pretty prescriptive about writing music into their scripts. And so, you know, not all of it ended up in there, but it does give you a jumping off point. You know, if you have someone writing in like Fleetwood Mac Landslide, like that's one thing. But, you know, if you have with cooper like writing in like howdy tools into it you're like okay this is this is cool this kind of paints a specific picture and then with jen music is so important to jen it's just as important as as the story and truly everything else so she's always scripting needle drops in and some of it stays some of it doesn't but her vision in just development and pre-production stage in terms of how stuff's cutting together where there's a montage how music's going to play is just so crazy because there's so many pieces that were scripted that we ended up you know using in the final product so i those are two filmmakers that i just really trust inherently just because they're they're just visionaries in their own ways you mentioned the overlap of music taste that that you guys already really had going into this project and did you receive any guidance ahead of time like when you were heading into working on do revenge were you told ahead of time like we really want to create a balance of classic pop needle drops versus like contemporary you want like a healthy mix like what did that look like going in so the original idea was you know maybe we have modern bands cover all these 90s songs and as we were kind of cutting the film together that evolved to well maybe we have a couple covers and use mostly modern stuff and i think somewhere along the line we kind of looked at the stuff that was really working that that we had known was going to be in there from the script stage stuff like you know hole and olivia rodrigo and harvey danger you know i think there's a good balance of like here are these contemporary artists that are so obviously wearing their influences on their sleeve and so to be able to connect like olivia and whole jen and i were also wearing our hearts and influences on our sleeves in terms of it was so clearly an homage to all of these things that we loved growing up but it doesn't feel derivative it feels like its own thing like even reading the script i was like this is the first thing that feels like it's a part of the teen comedy canon since like mean girls maybe and you know i've missed those 
films and to be able to be a part of it and something that feels like an instant classic and people are quoting and losing their mind about the soundtrack and stuff like that's the kind of stuff that made me want to work in film and music. What we really wanted to bring you in to talk about, like, because a lot of this episode of Sync is focusing on Meredith Brooks' bitch needle drop that you kind of end the film on. First, I'd like to ask if you had a particular favorite needle drop moment. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the film at this point, you know, 30 or so times, and it is a type of movie where, you know, even after it was finished, we did all these fun screenings, we had the premiere. And it is the type of film where I feel like every time I watch it, I have a different favorite. And like, as the film goes on, you're like, Oh, I forgot about this song. I forgot about this usage. This is so good. But I really, you know, I love the Maisie Dum Dum usage. Um, I love the Juliana Madrid pretend usage like that to me during the paintball scene um, or like the balloon paint scene. That's kind of a a nod and homage to uh, 10 things I hate about you. It's just kind of one of those like heart swell moments and it's their first kiss and and all of that. So that was, that, that might be my favorite at, at the moment. And then in terms of the Meredith Brooks bitch usage, there was always the idea that they would kind of drive off singing to something Actually, that's not true. I think originally they weren't singing along to it. And then as Jen was shooting, she was like, because we were just going to clear something and, you know, they, we would just put it in the car or whatever. But as Jen was shooting, she was kind of like, what if we had them singing along to something? And Jen had been like, you know, kind of obsessed with the idea of using bitch. And so we had to clear it pretty quickly. You know, the song gets used. I'm not sure how often it's licensed, to be honest. I know that some of those kind of legacy artists who have those those bigger hits, you know, some of them are a little bit more sensitive. Some of them are, are fine to kind of let people use whatever. Um, but I do think it just it's just such a perfect usage for for Drea and Eleanor. And it feels very organic to them. And I feel like sometimes some of that stuff can feel a little bit cringe or a little bit like looking away, like, oh, but I, I feel like I think Cammy and Maya are also just so good and just embody those characters so well. And it's just it's one of my favorite scenes because it just feels like the perfect way to wrap the film and also just feels so like joyful and celebratory and kind of just like really embodying them and also very representative of the soundtrack to the film as well. Is there a needle drop in the in the film that you really either in the scripting phase or in the edit that you really wanted and just couldn't clear, couldn't make work for whatever reason that uh, we almost got other than I love you always forever? So we cleared almost 200 songs for this movie, <laughs> which is, you know, I think by far the most we've ever done for a project. I don't really think we got, that's not true. We got one denial pretty early on, but that was when we were doing covers. When we decided we weren't going to do covers, some of the stuff that we had kind of thought we might use, we we were rethinking. And to be honest, I don't think there's a spot in the film where we had to use a second choice. There were some really, really difficult clearances whole celebrity skin was one of the more complicated expensive and just something that really came down to the wire even though that that was in there kind of from the beginning so like that the olivia song fat boy slim was was kind of one of the more difficult expensive clears cranberries which are in the in the end credits but it's one of those things like when you get Courtney Love on on board, when you get Billie Eilish on board, when you get Olivia Rodrigo on board, you know, that stuff helps kind of sell the excitement of the film, the support of the film, the cool factor of the film. You know, like it took a little bit of time to get Olivia to approve because she's a little bit sensitive about how her music's used. So she was someone who had to like, she requested to watch the sequence it's in and all of that stuff. But she was super excited about it. And yeah, so I mean, it's it's one of those rare films where even up until the last couple of months, we were still trying to beat things if we felt like we could beat something. And it was difficult resource-wise, just making sure that we could fit everything into the budget. But we, we ended up getting... I think everything that we wanted for the film, I don't think there was anything that we were we were denied or, or didn't end up using because we didn't have the resources to. Well, 
Uh, you know, I think, Rob, that that's all the questions that we have for you. I did want to give you a chance, though, to plug any future projects, anything you're working on. Um, so, yeah, so Gossip Girl, I have Miracle Workers. That's like a really funny show. And it's really fun to work on because it's just so it's like a live action Simpsons show. And then a film I'm really excited about that we did with Chris Landon, who we worked on Freaky with. He also did Happy Death Day. He has a new movie called We Have a Ghost that'll be on Netflix sometime in the spring. I just started working on a documentary with Gia Coppola about boy band fandom. Oh, I think I know the writer of the book at Space, Maria. Schindler. Maria. Yeah, yeah. 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 So so we're, we're getting started on that, which is a lot of fun. It's a dream. Thank you so much to Rob Lowry for sitting down and talking to us. Thanks for putting so many bangers in one movie. And thank you all for listening to our show. Tune in next week when we talk about another famous and infamous needle drop. And until then, you can follow us all on all social media. We're at The InSync Pod on all platforms. That's T-H-E-I-N-S-Y-N-C, wherever you get your social media. And until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Rachel Brodsky. Thank you so much. Saying we're all, we're just all, we're just bitches. (laughs) We are all bitches. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $129 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.